once again, everybody, and thank you for joining me here on this Thursday, March 5th edition of Bang the Book Radio. My name is Adam Burke, your host for the next hour and five, hour and ten minutes or so, as we go over all kinds of things in the world of sports from a betting focus. Happy to have you with me here for what is our last full Thursday show for a few weeks here. I'll be doing the betters box over the next few Thursdays, but with the NCAA tournament coming up with conference tournaments next week, not going to do the full shows on Thursday or Friday. We'll be shifting some of our guests around to try and accommodate them on some longer editions of Bang the Book Radio on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. But with those games, with so much going on, with everybody paying attention to those, just not a whole lot of reason for us to do the shows, not a whole lot of reason to inconvenience our guests while they're trying to you know, get their bets down, live bet, bet the card, stuff like that. You know, as we know, we don't get a lot of weekday games throughout the, mo- throughout the course of the college basketball regular season. But we get a lot of them in the afternoons here with conference tournaments, with March Madness. So no Thursday and Friday full shows over the next couple of weeks. But I will be doing the betters box on Thursday uh, on March 12th, March 19th. And then obviously March 26th, opening day for Major League Baseball. The daily article will be back that day. And also a new edition of the betters box will be coming your way for opening day. But with opening day three weeks away, Great time to get my MLB betting guide. You can find that over on Amazon, the 2020 MLB betting preview, I believe it's called over there. Uh, You can also download the PDF for free over at bangthebook.com. I did the deep dive podcast with Whale Capper and Andy last night. That was a ton of fun. That's making the rounds here around Twitter this morning. Whale and Andy, for those that don't know, for those that haven't listened to the deep dive, Those are two of the best guys in this business, not just them personally as human beings, but they do such a phenomenal job of studying and understanding and researching the industry and then bringing that to everybody, to the masses, through that awesome podcast that they do. So it was an honor to be on the deep dive last night. Like I said, that's making the rounds here on Thursday, but please check that out. I think it was a really, really good segment, a whole lot of fun talking with those guys. I think you're going to take a lot of good information from that segment and some good information from the wager talk videos I did last week as well. Taking a look at some season win total bets that I like some season win total previews, then also some thoughts on betting spring training baseball. Aside from baseball, I'm doing conference tournament previews over at bangthebook.com. This week, I've also written a UFC preview, a golf preview for the Arnold Palmer a NASCAR preview for this weekend at Phoenix. So very, very busy. Lots of content over at bangthebook.com. Make sure you check all that out. Finally, as you know, this and every edition of Bang the Book Radio presented by our friends over at DSI Sportsbook. BTB and the number 200 is that promo code. 100% deposit match bonus for the sportsbook. 100% deposit match bonus for the live casino at BetDSI. It's only a game until you bet it. We got two more divisions left to go here on the betters box for the five and fly segment. Five minutes on each of the five teams in this division. Today is the NL Central. Monday's show will be the National League West. Then obviously I'll have plenty of stuff to talk about in the lead up to the season. Otherwise, but let's go ahead and start here with today's edition of the Betters Box and that five and fly, starting with the Chicago Cubs. Their season win total here, 85 and a half. And I mentioned this a lot in my preview. You know, when you look at the Chicago Cubs from last year, They were a 90-win team by Pythagorean win-loss. They were an 89-win team by base runs, 88-win team by third-order win percentage, but they finished 84 and 78. And we always try to figure out, and this is something that I always try to make it a point to do, I try to figure out why teams fell short of their projections based on the alternate standings. Is it something where they ran really bad in one-run games? It's something where they ran, you know, perhaps really good in one-run games. Was it a cluster luck situation? I've talked about that concept before, introduced by Joe Pita in his fantastic book, Trading Bases. Is it something where, you know, a team was just really, really good with runners in scoring position or really, really bad with runners in scoring position? And did that have an impact on how things went for their seasons? Well, when we look at the Chicago Cubs, they went 2-10 and ten over their last 12 games. That's it. That's all it is to their season. They went 2-12. and 12 or 2-10, and 10, excuse me, over the last 12 games at the absolute worst possible time. You know, if you go 2-10 and 10 in the middle of the season, something like that, people may kind of say, okay, you know, what's going on with this team? 
But when you go two and ten to close out the regular season, the sky is falling. And this is a Cubs team that, again, on pace for anywhere from eighty-eight to ninety wins, on pace for eighty-eight wins if they had, you know, just finished up the regular season in decent form, and their season win total comes out eighty-five and a half. And what we get here is we get some recency bias because the Cubs fell short of expectations, fell short of the usual standard that they have, and they had a terrible offseason. You know, owner Tom Ricketts was crying poor. And you've had a few teams crying poor that really shouldn't have been over the course of this offseason, but that permeates the betting market. You know, that sort of starts to create the narrative about some of these teams. And the narrative right now about the Cubs is not very good. You know, they didn't spend money this offseason. You know, they didn't live up to expectations last year. Even though if you take a deeper look and you see it, that 2-10 and 10 finish where they lost five one-run games in that span, that played a big role. That played a big part as to why they struggled late in the year. Now, look, I understand that there are worries about this team, and there should be. You know, I, I think the dynamics with David Ross are kind of interesting here. I do think that to a degree – the Cubs quit on Joe Madden last year. Like they had enough of Joe Madden's bullshit and they just sort of were ready to be done. And, you know, they lost some close games down the stretch, but they also just didn't play particularly well. The offense wasn't necessarily great. I think they were just kind of done. And we saw that change. We saw the Cubs hire David Ross. I don't know about David Ross here because keep in mind, David Ross is not that far removed from playing. He was on the 2016 World Series team and played with a lot of these guys. This team is not that much different than that World Series winning team. John Lester's still around. Kyle Hendricks still around. A lot of the offensive pieces are still around. Is David Ross a friend, or is David Ross a leader? And those lines are very, very blurred right now, I think. So I'm curious to see how those dynamics play out with the Cubs, in particular early on in the season here. But Look, I mean, this was an offense that underperformed last year. 13th in batting average, 8th in on-base percentage, 9th in slugging percentage. That shouldn't happen with the talent on this team. You've got way too many good offensive pieces. A Javier Baez, a Chris Bryant, an Anthony Rizzo, a Kyle Schwarber, even guys like David Boat and Ian Happ. There's too much talent here for this offense to perform to that level where they're kind of a borderline top 10 offensive team. I think that should change. Now, on the pitching side, you've got some concerns because last year, their five primary starters, Jose Quintana, Cole Hamels, John Lester, Hugh Darvish, and Kyle Hendricks, they started 150 of the 162 games for this team. So you do worry about that. I, I always find it very difficult to believe that teams will replicate good health that they had the previous year. So that is a worry. John Lester's getting older. The command is starting to wane. Jose Quintana is starting to lose it a little bit. But you, Darvish, big second half, Cy Young candidate for me. I like Kyle Hendricks a lot, a low ERA, high XFIP kind of guy. And those guys typically don't get valued properly in the betting markets, to say the least. There are big worries with the bullpen. Four of the top five guys in appearances are gone. You need a lot more from Craig Kimbrell. The Cubs don't have the ceiling that the Cincinnati Reds have but they may be the safest pick to win the National League Central. And I do lean over here with this team, but this is not one that I have bet for the upcoming 2020 season. One that I have bet, one that I have bet the over on, I got 83 and a half, it's now 84 and a half, the Cincinnati Reds. I am all in with the Cincinnati Reds. They are all in with analytics, so they are all in with me. And a lot of people really do like this Cincinnati Reds team. Some people much smarter than me, got in there on their World Series futures price in the 60, 70 to 1 range very early on in the offseason. A lot of people like this team. And look, there are a lot of reasons to like this team. The Reds last year, 75 and 87, which obviously does not sound good and isn't very good, but they were only minus 10 in run differentials. So they played more like an 80 and 82 team. And furthermore, their run differential in September was not very good. I think they did, that they just kind of realized, you know, what the finish to their season was going to look like. They kind of fell off a little bit late in the year. Some of the guys that were hurt just kind of tailed off, stuff like that. So this is a team that really, over the course of the season, 
should have been a team with a winning record, could very well have been a team in that wild card discussion. And you look at those advanced standings metrics. Once again, 80 and 82 by Pythagorean win-loss, 84 and 78 in base runs. And as I mentioned before, base runs is a context-neutral environment that just looks at individual outcomes offensively and defensively, puts together runs scored per game, runs allowed per game, then uses a Pythagorean-like formula to spit out a record based on that run differential. And the Reds were more like an 84 and 78 team. According to base runs, according to third order win percentage, they were more like an 86 and a half and 75 and a half type of team. Look, they should have been better. They played 57 one run games. That was the most in Major League Baseball. And this offense was below average. This offense wasn't good enough. And when you look at Great American Ballpark, traditionally a very good offensive park, that's not going to cut it. But I think that this offense is a lot better this year. You add Nick Castellanos. You add Mike Moustakis. You add Shogo Akiyama. You get probably more from guys like Jesse Winker and Nick Senzel. Maybe you get a bounce back year from Joey Votto. You've got guys like Aquino, guys like Suarez. They've got some really good offensive pieces here. And something else that you need to consider is that, you know, it's not just the guys that you add. It's the guys that they replace. And last year, guys like Jose Peraza, guys like Jose Iglesias were below average offensive players, well below average offensive players. Now you add in a Castellanos, you add in a Moustakis, you add in these guys that have these higher offensive ceilings, and all of a sudden, you're talking about an offense that should be league average or better. And that may not sound like a lot to you, but a league average offense with a top 10 pitching staff wins a lot of games in Major League Baseball. And this team, in my estimation, will win a lot of games. You look at the impact of Derek Johnson. Derek Johnson, of course, was formerly the pitching coach of the Milwaukee Brewers. I'll talk about the Brewers here in a second. But in 2018, the Cincinnati Reds were 24th in ERA, 27th in FIP, 21st in XFIP, 24th in strikeout percentage, and 17th in walk rate. In 2019, they were 8th in ERA, 9th in FIP, 4th in XFIP, fourth in strikeout percentage, and 19th in walk rate. So what we see here with this Reds team is improvement. It's year-over-year improvement. Sonny Gray was elite last year. Luis Castillo, strikeout increase. He has an elite ground ball rate. If he starts to cut down on the home runs, as he did in the first half of last year, that's a guy who's a Cy Young candidate. You could find him out there in the 20-25-1 to to range. Anthony DiScofani had one of the lowest Wobas against in the second half last year. They add in Wade Miley, an extreme ground ball guy. He's paired back together with Derek Johnson. You get a full season of Trevor Bauer, who should be a lot more comfortable. Strikeout percentage increased in the second half. And you get this buy-in with analytics. You get the hirings of guys like Kyle Bodie, of Caleb Cotham. A lot of guys from that driveline baseball pipeline. They added some guys on the offensive side, too, to improve player development. When you do that, when you make these analytically savvy hires, you maximize the potential and the, the, the ability of a lot of your in-house guys. These pitching gains are here to stay. And in fact, in some areas, they could get even better. So I'm talking about a league average offense with a top 10, maybe even top five, if everything falls into place, caliber rotation, a good bullpen anchored by Rysel Iglesias, Michael Lorenzen, you know, Pedro Strope, seven straight seasons with a FIP under 360 before last year. He's an above average reliever. They've got guys like Jose De Leon, Robert Stevenson was coming on last year. The Reds have a lot of pieces and parts here. Now they don't have a ton of minor league depth. That's the only reservation I have about this team, but this team has the highest ceiling in the division. I bet the over at 83 and a half. I still like it at 84 and a half. Really do like the Cincinnati Reds here for the upcoming season. Next up is the Milwaukee Brewers. Their season win total 83 and a half here. 
And the first thing I noticed about the Brewers is that they are a very top-heavy team. You've got Christian Yelich, perennial MVP candidate, gets that extension here this week, which I think looks very good for both the team and the player. Yelich signed a below-market deal with his first contract extension. Now he gets paid a little bit less than what he's worth, but he's able to recoup some of that money that he lost with that first contract. I love Keston Hira. Keston Hira should be one of the top second basemen off the boards in your fantasy drafts here. Elite contact metrics, and now he's there for the full season as the Brewers are done playing service time games with him. You've got Brandon Woodruff. You've got Josh Hader, the two best pitchers on this staff. The question is, what else do you have with the Milwaukee Brewers? I think Lorenzo Kane is a guy that can bounce back. Now, he will turn 34 in April, and that obviously worries me with his defensive metrics, with his legs. But his contact metrics were actually pretty good last year. So offensively, his profile should be a little bit better. I'm optimistic about him coming into the season. Offensively, though, you've got a lot of platoon guys. You've got some flexible multi-position guys with an Eric Sogard, with a Brock Holt. Uh, you got some platoon guys like Avasail Garcia, Justin Smoke. This is what the Brewers do. You know, they do what small market teams do. Try to find those buy low types of guys, the guys that can play a lot of different positions, guys that, you know, excel on one side of the platoon. It's a questionable offensive strategy. You know, you try to maximize every guy's skill set. If you can do it, that's great. If you can't, well, then your offense doesn't look very good. So I've got some questions about this offense. They lose Yasmani Grandal, who is one of the best pitch framers in baseball, also had an elite walk rate. They lose Mike Moustakis. They replace, you know, guys like Omar Narvaez, who's not a good framer, but a decent offensive catcher. They lose Derek Johnson two years ago. Now they lose Grandal. So I've got some questions about this pitching staff here too. But I think Brandon Woodruff will be fine. I think he will regress a little bit based on what he did last year. You put Adrian Hauser back in the rotation where he was better as a reliever than he was as a starter last year. So I wonder about that. You get Brad Anderson, who's very good when he's healthy, but he's not always healthy. Uh, you get Josh Lindblom coming over from the Korean baseball organization, and he's got a very heavy splitter, but who knows how he'll translate to the major league level. I really do like Eric Lauer, a guy they got uh, from the Padres in the Trent Grisham deal. I, I like Eric Lauer. It's a guy with a lot of innings under his belt already at 24, but this is a Milwaukee rotation that's going to pitch to contact try to stay off the barrel, and they've had success with this here over the last couple of years, but without Derek Johnson last year, everything kind of fell apart a little bit, and that does concern me some with this Brewers team here for this season. You know, the bullpen has a wide range of outcomes. Josh Hader is very, very good. I think Freddie Peralta's skill set plays up in the bullpen. If Corbin Burns ever figures it out, Corbin Burns has the elite type of raw stuff that could make him one of the best setup guys in Major League Baseball, if not one of the best closers in Major League Baseball, to where maybe Josh Hader becomes your fireman guy and kind of comes into any situation where you need him. Here's the thing. This is a Brewers team that last year was on an 82-win pace before September, and they went 20-7 and in September without Christian Yelich. I didn't expect that to happen. I was stunned that they made it into the wild card. But what do you do with this team? You know, they were 89 and 73 last year and plus three in run differential. So they are more like an 82 and 80 type of team. I think regression is coming. That being said, the market's getting really low on this team. The under is juiced. I saw an 81 and a half in the Westgate season wins pool. I lean under here, but I've been thinking about this one a lot lately. You know, for the purposes of the guide, it was under 83 and a half. Not to say that I would go over with this team. But I'm kind of wondering now if people are getting too low on an organization that is very, very smart, finds ways to maximize its pieces and parts. I wonder a little bit about this team. I'm going to do a lot more studying of the Brewers here as we get closer to the season. But for now, the lean is under, but not anything nearly strong enough to be a bet. Running over a little bit here with some of these teams, but fortunately, I can catch up a little bit with the Pittsburgh Pirates because their season win total 69 and a half here. This organization was a mess, and they cleaned house. They fired their team president. They fired their GM. They fired their manager. Now they bring in Derek Shelton, who was the bench coach for Kevin Cash down in Tampa Bay. He was also a hitting coach for the Indians when Kevin Cash 
was the bench coach there, um, or the bullpen coach, excuse me, for Terry Francona. You had the Sterling Marte trade. They lose Felipe Vasquez to prison. This Pirates team, you know, I, I liked this Pirates team last year, and I got burned by this Pirates team last year. They just weren't any good. And they were a 500 team going into the All-Star break. They were 44 and 45, but they went 25 and 48 in the second half. It was a toxic environment, and I didn't realize just how bad it was and how bad things could have gotten. They didn't make any moves of great confidence here, or great consequence, excuse me, heading into the 2020 season. They have one of the lowest opening day payrolls in recent memory. This is a contact-based lineup, but they don't hit for a lot of power beyond a guy like Josh Bell. So that definitely worries me quite a bit about this team in an era where power production is just so much more important than it ever has been. Home runs are up, doubles, triples. If you're a slap-hitting team, hit a bunch of singles, it just doesn't really work for you. And this is a Pirates team that doesn't have very much contact quality. They don't have a lot of guys that hit the ball hard. You got a guy like Brian Reynolds, who last year ran a 387 batting average on balls in play. Not sure how repeatable that is. One of the guys who does have better contact quality in this lineup, but this lineup is not very good beyond a guy like Josh Bell. If Gregory Polanco can stay healthy, that would help. But not a whole lot to like about this lineup. And the pitching staff so far is kind of a mess. Jamison Tyon's going to miss the year with Tommy John surgery. Steven Brault, Chad Cool, those are guys that have already been banged up here in spring training. Chris Archer is still trying to figure it out. I've never been on the Archer train. He's always been that guy with high ERAs, better peripherals, lower FIP, lower XFIP, lower Sierra. He just doesn't have a good command profile to me. I've never liked Chris Archer. I don't see why I would start now. The one, the couple guys I do like here, 23-year-old Mitch Keller is a guy that I like. I think Mitch Keller could have a breakout type of season. The stuff is very, very good. Um, you know, Health has always been a question for him, as it has been for a lot of the young arms that the Pirates have tried to bring up through the system. But Keller's got good stuff, good upside, good potential. And Joe Musgrove. Do I still like the stuff for Joe Musgrove? I still like the command profile. Even a little bit of a velocity increase here in spring training. But Musgrove, a guy that's been hurt, the shoulder's already acting up. He's a positive regression candidate from a left-on-base percentage standpoint, especially if he sees some strikeout increases. But he has to stay healthy. And to this point, he really hasn't been able to do that too well. And again, just one of those guys that doesn't seem to be capable of maximizing his potential. Maybe a new regime here with Pittsburgh will allow him to do that. The bullpen's got a lot of stuff, guys. Keone Kayla, Kyle Crick, Chris Stratton. These are guys that grade well in the spin rate department. I overshot this bullpen last year because I do like the raw stuff, the raw potential. Vasquez was very good, but it was just an uncomfortable situation. Kayla had problems with everybody. Crick, his season ended when he punched Vasquez and they got into a fight. Um, you know, Now things should be a little bit better for the Pirates, but still... This is just a team lacking talent, and they're in a division where there's four teams that you know, could conceivably be 500 or better. So the Pirates, you've got to look under with them. I think there are some bright spots, but on the whole, just not a whole lot of things to get too excited about. Finally here, the St. Louis Cardinals. Their season win total, 87.5. Already bet the under on this one at 88.5. There's been a lot of under steam on the Cardinals. Their season win total is juiced heavily to the under. They got a very low Pakoda projection a couple of weeks ago. And there's been a growing sentiment of doubt about this team anyway for a variety of different reasons. First of all, last year, this was a team on a 500 pace. And then Jack Flaherty went nuclear in the second half. 091 ERA, 222 FIP, 319 XFIP, almost a 34% strikeout rate, 4.1 F war in the second half for Jack Flaherty, which is a good se- a good full season for a lot of guys. And that was the second half that he had. But beyond Jack Flaherty, what do we get in this rotation? Miles Nicholas is already hurt. He's a league average type of guy anyway. Adam Wainwright, league average or below. They're going to stretch out Carlos Martinez as a starter, so we'll see how that experiment goes. Alex Reyes is a guy that always has a lot of upside, but he's been hurt. You've got Dakota Hudson. Extreme ground ball guy, doesn't miss a lot of bats. 
doesn't have a great walk rate. You know, he's kind of a BABIP-dependent type of guy. They bring over Kwon Hung Kim. You wonder what he's going to look like here coming over from Asia. The Asian pitchers, it's always iffy. You know, you've got guys like Miles Mikolas and Josh Lindblom that you know, at least pitched in North America. You get some of these Japanese or Korean import type guys. Guys like Yu Darvish have been pretty good. A guy like Yusei Kikuchi last year was not good at all. Masahiro Tanaka, you know, he's had his seasons where he's been very good. So it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, you don't always know what you're going to get from these Asian import pitchers. And a guy like Kim here, I just don't know. You know, you can look at the numbers and they're pretty good. Obviously, if they weren't good, he wouldn't be coming over to North America with an MLB contract. But you just don't know. You know, you're just not sure what you're going to get. Guys like Hunjin Ryu have been good. Kenta Maeda's have been good. Stuff like that. You don't know what you're going to get here. And really, you don't know what you're going to get as a whole behind Jack Flaherty. And what happens here is that you may see some weakness with the bullpen. Andrew Miller is already broken. That's not really a big surprise. But Carlos Martinez, if he actually gets slotted into the rotation, that lowers the upside for the bullpen. And I do like this bullpen. I think Giovanni Gallegos is very good. John Gant is solid. John Brebbia, very solid as well. They've got a lot of capable arms, but who fits where? Where do these puzzle pieces come together for this Cardinals team? I'm not exactly sure. And what makes that doubly concerning is that this offense is not good at all. This is a below average type of offense. You know, Paul Goldschmidt last year, in the 70th percentile in exit velocity, 72nd percentile in hard hit rate, is the aging curve arriving early for Paul Goldschmidt? Was there some sort of underlying injury, something like that? There are a lot of concerns about Paul Goldschmidt, and Paul Goldschmidt needs to be really good in the middle of this lineup because this is a lineup that's getting older, it's getting less productive, you're lucky that Dexter Fowler bounced back last year and had a good season. You're lucky that Tommy Edmond carried a high BABIP. You're lucky that Colton Wong is a guy that can use his speed and his contact to get on base. But Matt Carpenter just doesn't look good. You know, Matt Carpenter doesn't look like a bounce back guy. I worry about Yadier Molina. They got a lot of guys in their 30s here. This Cardinals team is aging out of its prime and doing so in a hurry. So you need this pitching staff to be really good. You need this pitching staff to stay healthy and carry this team. I don't know if that happens this year. It happened last year with Flaherty and with the bullpen being very good in the second half. This was a 500 team at the All-Star break. And all of a sudden in the second half, they took off. I think what, 47 and 24 or something like that in the second half. They took off. And I think this Cardinals team is a lot closer to that 500 team we saw in the first half than the team that won, you know, 90, 91 games and got into the playoffs and even won a series when they got there. I think this Cardinals team could be one of the worst that we've seen in a while. So I'm on the under 87 and a half here. And again, you know, if you've got a league average offense and a top 10 pitching staff, you can get there. And if this offense is league average, the Cardinals have a chance to get there. I just don't see that being the case. I don't see the pitching staff being as good. So under 87 and a half for the Cardinals. If you find one that's reasonably juiced, I still like it at that number. But again, a lot of negative sentiment, a lot of steam coming in against this Cardinals team. Once again, the five and fly segment here for Monday will be the National League West. I got a lot of thoughts on those five teams, so make sure that you tune in for that. We'll finish up this betters box segment here, taking a look at some injury updates from around Major League Baseball. And we start with the Yankees, as it seems like we've done on pretty much every one of these betters box segments here. Aaron Judge, shoulder issues, pectoral issues. It's been such a bad offseason in spring training for the Yankees here. Paxton, at least it looks like his timeline has been accelerated a little bit, could come back in early May. That would definitely help the Yankees out quite a bit. But Judge, you know, Stanton already. We'll see what else happens with this lineup. You know, Aaron Hicks still trying to come back from Tommy John surgery. Some guys that are sort of journeymen or minor leaguers had really big years last year. You wonder about the repeatability of that. I don't know about this Yankees team going into the season. Um, you know, I did mention I like they're over for the guide, but with each passing day, with each bit of news that we get about this Yankees team, more and more worries popping up, to say the least. 
We stay in the AL East here. We talk about the Boston Red Sox. It's a left flexor strain for Chris Sale. So it's not the UCL, which is allegedly okay, but he's going to wind up missing a month plus of the regular season. And who knows? It could end up being more. He's probably going to be out until at least early to mid-May now. This was already a Red Sox team with a lot of pitching concerns. Uh, you know, Eduardo Rodriguez is a guy that's been in the trainer's room a lot. Uh, the bullpen just doesn't look all that great to me. Now you get sale out for about a month. Concerns. Lots of concerns. And I mentioned this on the show that, you know, they were talking about Chris Sale and his illness and this and that. I thought that that was a deflection to keep people from worrying about the health of his arm. Maybe that was the case. So Chris Sale going to be brought along very, very slowly here. Probably miss a month to six weeks of the season. And who knows? It could end up being more than that. But the Red Sox did sign Colin McHugh. Colin McHugh was waiting around for a guaranteed Major League deal. He got one now. He'll be brought along a little bit slowly. I do like Colin McHugh. I don't like Colin McHugh as much as a starter. So it doesn't really change the projection for me too much about Boston. Still a team that I just don't like a whole lot. And in fact, when I saw that Sale was going for an MRI to be looked at by James Andrews and looked at again by Ella Tracci, I bet the under 84 and a half with the Red Sox here. I guess is a team that could really bottom out this season. We go out to the National League West here. Tyler Beatty of the Giants, a flexor sprain and a UCL sprain. Now they're saying it's a 75% attachment of the UCL. So they're probably going to try rehab before they try Tommy John. And look, to me, if I'm Tyler Beatty and I think there's a chance of Tommy John, I probably do it simply because I can be back by the middle of next season. If you wait and try to rehab this for two months or something, all of a sudden that takes away all of 2021 too. So hoping for the best for Tyler Beatty, but the Giants were a team I already slapped a low ceiling on. I've already bet under their season win total. Beatty is a big loss because he was one of the few upside guys they had in that rotation. Now he's going to be out for the foreseeable future. And who knows, it could be even longer than that if his ligament doesn't respond to treatment and rest. So Tyler Beattie, that's a big loss for the Giants, a team that already didn't have a lot of prospects anyway. Griffin Canning going for a second opinion on his MRI for the Los Angeles Angels. That's not great. Also, Felix Pena coming back from a torn ACL. He's behind schedule, too. He'll probably be out until May. The Angels are a very worrisome team because they don't have a lot of great depth. Canning, one of the upside guys in that rotation, looks like he's going to be out for a while. Big concerns out there in Los Angeles. Other concerns in the AL West as well. Jordan Alvarez for the Astros having some knee issues already. That's a concern. You know, a lot of times you think about hitters, you think about upper body strength, but the lower half and the core generate a lot of power. Alvarez already de dealing with these knee injury, knee issues. We know he's not a DH type of guy, or we know he's not an outfielder type of guy. He's an everyday DH kind of guy. That one worries me here for the Astros. So your Dan Alvarez, keep an eye on this one because the Astros are going to win this year by outscoring teams. Their pitching staff is not great at all. They have to score a lot of runs this year to get over that season win total. I think they're plenty capable of doing it with the offense that they have, but Alvarez needs to be a key cog in the middle of that lineup. He may be the best pure hitter on that team with his power with what he's able to do hitting the ball as hard as he does. This is a concern for the Astros. And if they get some more of these here or Alvarez is going to miss some time, I'm going to have to switch my gear here and, and maybe look at the under for Houston. I still like the over 94 and a half as of now. But again, if cluster injuries start to pop up on offense, that will lower their projection for me quite a bit. Finally, out in the AL West, AJ Puck of the Oakland A's has a shoulder strain. It's termed as mild, but... Anytime you talk about a guy that's had the injury luck of A.J. Puck, that's concerning to say the least. So this is a bummer. I'm worried about this. One of the things I liked about Oakland was the upside of that rotation with guys like Puck, with guys like Jesus Lazardo. Now Puck already on the shelf. You really hope Lazardo is able to stay healthy. But again, you got to watch for these things here in spring training because they will have an impact on the ceilings that you place on some of these teams. I'll update some more injuries and talk about the NL West here on the Monday edition of Bang the Book Radio. Make sure you check out my MLB betting guide over at bangthebook.com in PDF form and also the 2020 MLB betting season preview over on Amazon. 
Uh, and make sure you check out that deep dive segment I did with Whale Capper and Andy. Uh, that's making the rounds here today. A lot of fun on that segment. A lot of good insights. They ask a lot of good questions on that show as well. So I'm really excited here. Three weeks to go until opening day. With that, we shift from Major League Baseball over to the hardwood. We'll talk some college basketball and some NBA here with John Ryan, professional handicapper and contributor over at bangthebook.com, at John Ryan Sports and the number one on Twitter. John, how's it going today, man? I'm doing well, Adam. How about you? I'm doing very well, buddy. Very busy time of the year, to say the least. Three weeks till opening day. Conference tournaments in full swing. 19 conference tournaments start next week including the Big East and the Big Ten, a couple of conferences that we're going to talk about here on today's segment. But before we get into that, something that you wanted to mention here, and, and maybe this is something that could have some relevance once we get to the NCAA tournament, that you just don't feel like there's a dominant player in college basketball this year. Yeah, that, that's true. And I don't really think there's a dominant team either. Uh, we're so used to seeing um, you know, Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina, Names like that, um, Kansas, of course, being at the top. And Kansas is at the top this year. But it's, I think this season has been one of the best for me to enjoy uh, from start to finish. And it just seems like, it, like it's a big crescendo going into, this, um, into these big tournaments. And then, of course, the NCAA um, tournament itself will be just absolute chaos in terms of trying to figure out uh, a perfect bracket, which has never been done. So with, the, um, with that theme, um, there really isn't any um, what I would call a transcendent player either, like a Zion. You know, Zion Williamson last year was, you know, I forget how big he is, but he was 285 pounds and uh, he was a man among boys and, um, you know, just dominated every, every time he was on the court. This year, there's some names that are, uh, I think, new on the, on the horizon, um, you know, starting with um, seniors, too. They're not, you know, freshmen that are coming in one year and being so great, and then they go. And you can look at Kentucky, uh, who is notorious for that, and they actually have uh, five players essentially scoring about the same number of points per game, which he's never had that as a, as a nucleus on, a, on any of his teams. It's always been one or two studs that come in and they go to the NBA. So... On Seton Hall, you have senior uh, Miles Powell, and, and unfortunately, they lost their uh, senior day game last night to Villanova. Uh, but being in the Philadelphia area, I wasn't too disappointed. But he has had an amazing history. If I remember right, he, he either broke his ankle his senior year in high school after he had signed to go to Seton Hall and uh, came into school completely out of shape in like 50, 60 pounds overweight. And now he's turned himself into this uh, guy that just can't stop working, according to what you read uh, from what his coach says. And uh, he's definitely a, a Wooden Award candidate, in my opinion. He's, you know, he's just completely different than he was four years ago. Um, another guy uh, out of the Big East and the Big Ten is the um, senior um, uh, Pritchard from Oregon. Uh, another guy that's in the Big Ten that we talk about all the time is junior uh, Luca Garza. And then uh, one that is really a, kind of a surprise that nobody thought of is Dayton. And um, Obi Toppin is just having an incredible year. Every time you watch him play, uh, you know, he's making dunks like you just can't even believe. Um so when they all get into the tournament, it's just, it's just going to be so enjoyable and so much fun to watch it. Uh, I would have to say, though, that my pick would be probably Marquette um, senior uh, Marcus Howard, who has had three 50-point games, which uh, I don't think that's ever been done in the history of college basketball. Uh, this year, he's accounting for 33% of Marquette's scoring. And what's really remarkable about his play is that there's very few possessions that he touches the ball that he doesn't get immediately doubled and triple teamed and he still scores 27 points a game um so that fundamentally that's a problem for marquette when they get into the tournaments because they have one guy that basically contributes 33 percent of their output uh but just to watch him play and how good he is even when he's doubled 
it, it's amazing to me. <laughs> well, speaking of Miles Powell, he's got a big game coming up here on Saturday. Seton Hall goes on the road at Creighton. If Creighton wins, they share the Big East regular season title. If Seton Hall wins, they'll end up winning it outright here with their 14-4 and record in conference play. So a big one here really for both of these teams. And you know, I don't know how important necessarily seeding will be for the Big East Conference Tournament just because all of these teams have already shown a propensity to kind of beat up on each other. But for Seton Hall, you know, going for that first outright title since 1993, certainly something they would like to have. But Creighton, a very, very good team at home. As we know, that jump shooting type of team, generally those teams are better at home. What do you think here about this one in Omaha coming up on Saturday? I like uh, Creighton quite a bit uh, already in this game. And a lot of it has to do with the the loss that Seton Hall suffered last night. Uh, I think the pressure of what you mentioned of not winning a conference uh, championship since 1991 is, is weighing on them. And it, it, I think it was pretty evident last night. Um, they didn't play horribly bad. Obviously, they played well, but they didn't play well enough to beat um, a young Villanova team, but one that has one of the best coaches in the history of the game. So the I've, I've always had Creighton as the top-ranked team in the conference for about the last four weeks that you and I have been talking, um, and I still feel that way. So I'm I'm thinking that Creighton's going to be about a probably about a four and a half point favorite in this game. I wouldn't be surprised to see it that high. Um, it could also open with Creighton as a two and a half point favorite. Uh, again, it, we get back to the betting behavior of the, of the public. So how's the public going to look at last night's game? Well, they can look at it two ways. Seton Hall is going for the championship and they're going to be so focused that there's no way they're going to lose this game. Or it's going to be the complete opposite end of the spectrum where Oh, my God, they had their chance to win, and they blew it. So how now are they going to go on the road against Creighton and win? So I think that's what um, will be a real challenge for the lines maker to decide whether it's going to be a skinny favorite or maybe as high as four and a half. Well, another interesting game, another interesting spot here coming up on Saturday. Villanova's on the road at Georgetown. And as we know, Georgetown, not a great team. In fact, they've dropped five in a row. But I think that was a big win for Villanova just simply because, you know, not that they needed it, not that they need any sort of validation, but this is a pretty young team. And in fact, something that's really worth considering here as they go play Georgetown on Saturday is that Villanova is not a deep team. And I mentioned this yesterday in my preview that late in the year here, they've got some young guys. They've got a couple of freshmen, a sophomore, and a couple of juniors playing really, really big minutes that they hadn't really played previously Last night, they didn't get a whole lot of contributions from their bench. They haven't gotten a whole lot of contributions from their bench most of the season here. Now they've got this game against Georgetown that seemingly means nothing to them. You know, I mean, if they go out there and win the Big East, that'll help their seeding for the NCAA tournament. They're obviously already in the tournament. Do you worry about a lack of focus here for Villanova on Saturday at Georgetown? Uh, I don't, Adam. Uh because I think they still, there could be a three-way tie uh, for the regular season championship. And I, I could be wrong with the tiebreakers, but um, actually if Creighton wins, they will have swept Seton Hall, uh, which means that I think that's the first tiebreaker. Uh, but right now Creighton and, and Villanova are tied, and I think they split. I'm, I'm, they did split. So then what happens if um, if Seton Hall does lose to Creighton, all three of them are going to be 13-5 uh, and five for the regular season. So I, I actually haven't researched what the tiebreakers are, but uh, for that reason, if I am right on that, I think Villanova is going to play as, as focused as they did last night, uh, simply knowing that a win gets them possibly a tie if Creighton wins. Well, I'll, I'll have to look that up. Well, and, and that's the important thing, too, is, you know, you got a lot of conference tournament implications. Now you do have tiebreakers and things like that. And, you know, some conferences do reward the top seeds, either with, you know, buys, double buys, triple buys, the timing of the game, stuff like that. I don't necessarily feel like that's a big concern for Villanova and a team like Jay Wright. I think maybe if you're Jay Wright, you know, you kind of enforce this game to the degree that, 
you know, hey, boys, we don't want to develop any bad habits going into the conference tournament. But at the same time, you know, it, it's also a thing where we've seen coaches do this. We've seen coaches kind of take a take the foot off the gas pedal a little bit, give their guys some rest. We'll see it in the Big Ten tournament next week, and we'll talk about the Big Ten here in a few minutes. But we'll see it in the Big Ten tournament where you don't really want your team playing four games in four days with the NCAA tournament less than a week away. You know, so you may win a game or two and then kind of scale it back, take your hand off the throttle a little bit, and go ahead and give your team a little bit of rest. I don't know if Jay Wright does that, but I think he's in the right type of situation to possibly do that because he's got five guys that play essentially 75-plus percent of the minutes available, and they're younger guys that necessarily haven't been in that type of role. So I kind of look at this as maybe a little bit of a letdown spot for Villanova, maybe a little bit of a maintenance spot coming up here on Sunday or Saturday, excuse me. So if you like Villanova, maybe you and I might have to come up with a little bit of a friendly wager on that one. Okay, I definitely will uh, do that with you. All right, one other game in the Big East to talk about here, the surging Providence Friars. And this is a team that, you know, I thought coming into the season, I kind of liked Providence. I thought they were maybe one of those middle-tier shots to make a big push here in this league. I didn't think Seton Hall would be as good as they were. I didn't think Creighton would be as good as they are. Villanova, I expected, of course, to be very good. But I thought Providence had a legitimate shot to go out there and win this conference. And maybe they do win the conference tournament, but they've won five in a row here already. And they should get another confidence-building game this weekend against DePaul. I, I definitely agree. They're, as we talked on, on the show here several weeks now, when you have to go play at Providence, it, it's a nightmare for, for the, the road warrior, for sure. Um, you know, they're 18 and 12 now and a definite bubble team. Um, and if they uh, win a couple games in the tournament, at least maybe get to the semifinal, uh, I think they're in. Um, they kind of remind me of a, a Purdue team in the Big Ten. And Purdue's record is, is slightly worse. Uh, but Purdue's had some tough losses, but now they're starting to just click. And that's a team, as we talk about the Big Ten, that could make a run and also um, get an invite. So the you know, with Providence, they're 15 and 14 against the spread for the season with one push, 18 and 12 overall. Uh, but they've won, as you said, five in a row and covered all five uh, by significant margins. Uh, which means they've they've done something here to improve their game because uh, the public um, sentiment is not catching up to them. You know, it, it's it's similar to uh, you know a stock like we're seeing in the market now that um, is trending, trending, trending. Uh, maybe a Tesla is a good example, and it and it's doing things that ninety nine percent of people in the world that follow that stuff don't think is sustainable. Yet it keeps going higher. And I think that's the example here with Providence. Um, just because a team wins five in a row against the spread doesn't mean you start fading them. Um, you know, it's like flipping a, a, a coin on heads and tails. If you have seven previous flips that were heads, it doesn't mean tails is due. It's uh, a term called mutually exclusive. Every flip is unique to itself. And each game is unique to itself as well. Of course, there's trends that we use to develop systems and uh, betting queries that produce uh, profits over time. Uh, but Providence is a team that is, is very scary right now if you're the opponent. All right, let's transition over to the Big Ten side of things here because we've got a few talking points in, in this conference and I want to make sure we got some time to spend on the NBA here at the end. But we fast forward ahead to Sunday here in the Big Ten Ohio State and Michigan State, a game on your radar. And look, I mean, this conference tournament in uh, in Indianapolis is going to be absolutely crazy. I think you've got at least eight teams that have a legitimate chance at winning this thing. You probably wouldn't have said that about Ohio State maybe four or five weeks ago, but the Buckeyes now playing a whole lot better. Michigan State's won four in a row. Tom Izzo doing his usual March thing here. But Chris Holtman takes his team up to East Lansing on Sunday. What stands out about this Ohio State-Michigan State game to you? Well, it, depending on what Maryland does uh, in their game, it is, this could actually be for all the marbles of the regular season. Um, 
there's a lot of things that have to happen for that to occur. But this is a, a big-time rivalry, and this will be, for these teams, they went through their adversity, and it looked like, you know, what's wrong with them? They, they were supposed to be so good. And they were playing bad, and they were losing games badly, and it, it just didn't seem to be working. The chemistry wasn't there on either team. But, again, you mentioned the great coaching that they have, and now they've completely reversed course um, and show why they are a top-five team. Uh, Ohio State, I believe, was ranked as high as third in December. Michigan State was the preseason number one. Uh, so when I see these, these things roll around, again, it's the public sentiment. Uh, the way people vote um, is sentiment. So you have these yo-yos where, uh, well, I shouldn't say yo-yos as in the voters, but um, the roller coaster ride of the rankings where a team all of a sudden that was uh, deemed the top five is now suddenly falling out of the polls. And what changed? Um, and I ask myself that question every every single week, if not every single day. If the players... And the talent are there. I've always presumed and presumed correctly that they're going to figure it out and, and get it right. <clears throat> Ohio State on um, January 23rd had just got done losing uh, six of the last seven outright. Uh, they were on a seven game against the spread losing streak. And then all of a sudden, if Almost out of nowhere, they played Northwestern and then Indiana, big win over Michigan. Uh, they kind of laid an egg on the road at, at Wisconsin, but now have ripped off five of the last six. So overall, that's eight of the last ten that they've won and covered. And again, the team like a Providence, uh, the, the line has not caught up to Ohio State. So I've, Ohio State would be one of those teams um, that I would not even – want to step in front of the freight train and try to fade them. So they play Illinois tonight uh, at home. And, um, you know, the line's uh, five and a half. I'm a little surprised that that's not – I expected it to be around seven. Uh, but Illinois in their own right is playing very, very well. And uh, it's an example of the Big Ten. You know, I, I always had said, Adam, that I, I wanted to see seven teams, and I was predicting seven teams in the top 25. And I'm still wrong because this week it went from six to eight. So you have eight or 14 teams ranked in the top 25. And that hasn't happened for, for many, many years. So I'm curious here with the Ohio State sentiment, you know, kind of growing almost, you know, quietly compared to Michigan State. Because everyone just expects Michigan State to be good in the month of March. And obviously they're trending that way. What do you think this line looks like here on Sunday? Uh, I have Michigan State just favored by a little bit only because it's at home. Um, I can tell you right now, I, I like Ohio State in that game a lot. And I like them even more if they um, defeat Illinois by double digits, which I, I I will expect that to happen tonight. It's not really that bold a statement being at home and they're five and a half point favorites to win by 11. <clears throat> but I think that that type of win will make it four in a row, and then they have the finale against Michigan State. And I, you know, I just like I like Ohio State a lot. All right, so the early game on Sunday here. This is a noon Eastern time tip off. Is Michigan and Maryland another game that you wanted to talk about? And obviously, Maryland with a lot on the line here. I mean, you know, they, they're trying to get at least a share here of the Big Ten conference title. They've dropped two in a row. They're kind of starting to slow down a little bit, it would seem, but. Michigan's a tough team to want to back right now. They've also lost two in a row, not really doing a whole lot in terms of adjustments. They're down to 500 here in conference play. They do wind up having a game tonight at home, laying a big number against Nebraska, which they should win. But what about this early tip on Sunday against Maryland? Well, that, I think the line will come out pretty close to pick, maybe Maryland favored by one. Um, Maryland kind of is going through the same thing that Seton Hall has down the stretch with just kind of stumbling a little bit. Um, you know, Maryland has lost uh, uh, three of their last four after winning eight in a row. Uh, so that came to an abrupt stop against a team called Ohio State. Um, so I guess when you hit that 
brick wall, it does bring in the question of like, maybe we're not as good as we thought we were, uh, which does go through uh, teams that are comprised of 20 year olds. Um, so I think that's the maturing process that, that Maryland's going through right now. Michigan has been pretty volatile uh, in terms of their performance. The only team more volatile has been Iowa. You know, as we have mentioned, Iowa, when they when they play bad, it's it's horrifying. And when they play well, they're like a Final Four team. So uh, Michigan has had trouble defending the paint. Uh, so I think you'll see Maryland go after that. Um, Michigan does a real good job defending the three. Uh, but I think Maryland will, will look to score as many two-pointers as possible uh, against Michigan. In terms of a pick, um, I don't have a coin in front of me, but I would flip it. I, I don't have a feel for this game at all. One other thing that you want to talk about here with regards to games coming up this weekend in the Big Ten, Penn State and Northwestern here on Saturday afternoon. Northwestern only has two wins in conference play. They are both over Nebraska. They won on the road. 81 to 76 in overtime. They won at home by five points as well. Those are the only two victories here for Northwestern in Big Ten play. So kind of a one-shot deal for them once they get to Indianapolis, and they'll probably be one and done when they get there. But what you want to talk about here specifically, as it is senior day for Northwestern here, you want to talk about that last home game and, and sort of something that you found with that. Yeah, Um it's pretty interesting stuff, to be honest with you. I, I want to back up to a, a game with Penn State against Michigan State. Um, and I'm sure all, everyone uh, watched that and knows what the result was. Uh, but there was a trend in that game where if you're playing the third consecutive opponent that's ranked, um, which Michigan State was, they're 0-7. So... I'm I obviously put out a pick on Penn State and I'm watching it up 19, 40 to 21. Man, am I looking smart? And then all of a sudden, it it just went uh, down the toilet. And that is the second time now that Penn State has blown a 20 point halftime or second quarter lead. Uh, they did it against Rutgers, but hung on for a one point win, uh, also at home. Uh, so now I have some question marks about Penn State going into into Northwestern here, but they are playing Northwestern, and Northwestern is in their last home game of the regular season. They're two and eight over the last ten seasons in their last home game. So I, I think that um, you know that, that kind of reflects the, the kids are obviously playing their, their hearts out in their last home game, especially the seniors. Um, but when you know psychologically you're not nearly as good as a Penn State or any of the other contenders in the conference, and you're one of the cellar dwellers in the best conference on the on the in the country, it, I think it's hard to maintain 40 minutes of outstanding play uh, to get an upset win. And Penn State is still playing for a lot. Uh, the seeding does matter. Um, there's so many teams that are on, on top of each other in that conference. The, the double buy is huge. Um, so I'm just pulling up, um, you know, Penn State's 11 and 8, so they would go to 12 and 8. Um, Illinois has two games remaining. They're ahead of them uh, at 12 and 6. They obviously play Ohio State tonight. And then, um, you know, Michigan State, Wisconsin are currently tied with Maryland uh, for the number one spot. Uh, so even if you get the single buy, it's still beneficial to get that extra day or two of rest. Now you had in the notes that you sent over to me here. You had one other uh, betting system that you wanted to touch on here. I don't know if it was, if this was big 10 specific or not, but uh, I know that you're very big into the trends. You're very big into running the different kinds of queries. Uh, what else have you found? that's pretty interesting here for us. Uh, let me pull that up here. Um, you said it was the B19 betting system? Um, actually, that was a misspelling. It was, uh, that was supposed to be a zero, um, you know, speed typing. But um, it has to do with um, teams that are playing the last home game um, over the last uh, two weeks of the season. And I was bringing it down to the, to the last uh, part of the season, or the last game of the season. Um, and unfortunately, I, 
I had it pulled up at him and I can't find it right now. Um, uh, All right. Well, we'll get back to it here if you find it over the course of the rest of the segment, because I do want to make sure we spend a few minutes here. On the NBA side of things, obviously conference tournaments, all the rage right now in college basketball, but the NBA is still just kind of plugging along as it usually is. And there are a few buy teams that you're kind of looking at here in the association right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm continuing my bullishness on Indiana. Um, we mentioned that last week and they went two and one. Um, and in the article too, that I write for uh, Bang the Book and you on Thursdays, uh, I mentioned that the game last night was going to be a real test. And anymore, Milwaukee is, again, a team you just don't fade. I, I just You just don't want to lose money going against them. Uh, they're a team like we had talked about uh, previous in this, uh, in this uh, chat with Tesla. You know, that stock just keeps going higher, and everybody's amazed that, you know, is this thing ever going to, like, correct? Is it ever going to stop? And that's how Milwaukee is. And if I look at the metrics that I follow with games that they've played after the All-Star break, they're better than they were at any other point in the season. Um, so I know it sounds ludicrous to say that, you know, they could win straight out. It's not out of the realm of possibility because there's really – even the Lakers and the Clippers right now are not in the same league. Um, it's – Again, they're just they're just a team that I highly recommend that you you know if you're going to bet on one of their games, bet on them. Uh, for the Pacers, they're they're looking like a team that can make a a run up the standings and get a decent seed. Um, last week, I think I had a, a small thought in my head that maybe they were the team that could knock off uh, Milwaukee, but you know unless they suffer a serious injury injury to Giannis or or some other. Um, key player the chances of milwaukee not winning the east is uh is pretty remote now there are a couple of other teams that you're looking at here out in the western conference and and one is you know relatively unappetizing they've been one of the worst teams in the nba throughout the season and the other has some additional upside thanks to a player that came back a couple of months ago let's start with the golden state warriors what is it that you're kind of looking at with them they've been playing better uh to this point um, and now you have Steph Curry coming back, uh, I believe tonight. Uh, so his contribution will be, um, I'm, I don't think you're going to see him play more than 30 minutes in any game the rest of the season, but just his presence on the court is going to make those younger guys that have been playing in this, uh, this season up that much better. Uh, and I don't think that's going to be reflected in the, in the lines. Um, Let's see, uh, Golden State, um, their scoring has been up too. Uh, they're averaging 106 for the season, and over the last three, uh, they're averaging 114. Over the last 10, it's back at their season average of 106. So if they continue to score points above 110 a game over the next several games, that 10-day mo moving average, as they call it, will go above the season average, and then that's when you have all three of them trending up. <clears throat> and that would be a, a bullish case for the Warriors. And then um, the other team that I that really sticks out right now is the Pelicans. And I, obviously this is due to the return of Zion. Um, they're averaging 116 on the season without really having him for just – they only had him for this past month. Uh, over the last 10 – they're averaging six points more than their season average, of, which is 122. And then over the last three, they're averaging 124. So whether they can win enough games to uh, get up into the playoffs uh, is left to be remains to be seen. But that's another team that I, I would bet on uh, aggressively, and I just I would not stand in front of the freight train and try to fade them, even if they're on the road. It, it's just dangerous way to lose money. One more thing on the NBA side here. We know we get a lot of three and fours, four and sixes, some good situational betting opportunities in the NBA throughout the season, but especially now here late in the year, because we're going to have some teams that won't have legs, some teams that will, some teams that are tanking, as we know, so on and so forth. But the last thing to mention here, as far as the NBA goes, 
You met, you mentioned here that you got a betting system that's pretty interesting here with the third game and four nights angle. Yeah, it's um, I'll try to say this slowly in case people are writing it down, uh, but it, it goes like this: it's uh, playing three games in the last four days, you're, and you're playing an opponent. I'm sorry, the opponent is coming off uh, three games and it's playing the third game in the fourth day. Man, I must be getting old, Adam. I can't even talk. All right, so the opponent is coming off a a win of double digits, ten or more points um, on the road, and they're playing a home dog. So the, the opponent is favored. So again, it's uh, the opponent is favored on the road, is playing their third game in four nights, and is coming off a big double digit road win since 2015. Uh, it's gone 51 and 24 with three pushes for 68% um, and 38 and 40 straight up. So that brings in the money line feature of it too. And briefly, what I like to do with these dog situations, if they're uh, more than four and a half, five points, a combination wager using like 80% of your normal bet on the line, getting the points, and then take the 20% and put it on the money line. And over the course of the season, uh, doing plays like that is, is going to add a significant amount to your overall profit for the season. And, you know, game by game, you know, that doesn't matter. What matters is, is the whole season uh, and doing it consistently every single time. That's, that's what will make uh, the added profits at the, by the end of the season. Well, I got to say, John, I don't think it's a case of getting old. I think it's a case of it, it's been a long, you know, six, seven month stretch here doing all kinds of stuff with football and basketball. There's only so much you can take, you know, mentally and in terms of the research and the study <laughs> and the grind. I assure you, you are not alone here in, uh, in just having a lot of stuff running through your mind right now. It's definitely something that I'm dealing with, and I'm sure a lot of our other guests here on Bang the Book Radio are dealing with. But John Ryan, you can find his work over at bangthebook.com, taking a look every week at the Big East, at the Big Ten, and some NBA buy and sell for us. And, of course, John, as we always like to mention, your Twitter page, at John Ryan Sports and the number one. A lot of stuff going on there as well. Yeah, I'm going to offer um, listeners a chance to take a test drive in the NBA. Uh, I've been selling the subscription packages uh, for the conference tournaments and the NCAA tournaments, so it really wouldn't be fair to, to do that. But the NBA season is going very well for me. It's hitting 60% uh, right now for the entire season. Uh, so if you want to take a test drive of that between now and uh, Sunday's games, uh, just direct message me at my Twitter, and we'll get you set up. There you go. Once again, make sure you follow John on Twitter, at John Ryan Sports, the number one, and check out his work over at bangthebook.com. John, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me, man. And we'll talk to you again uh, next week, probably on Wednesday with no Thursday show. That sounds great, Adam. There you go. There's John Ryan. Once again, at John Ryan sports and the number one professional handicapper over there on Twitter. And you can check out his work over at bangthebook.com. coming up on our Friday edition of bang the book radio. We're going to chat a lot more college basketball. We're going to get Kyle Hunter, professional handicapper from huntersportspicks.com and bettersportspicks.com back on the show. We're going to talk uh, conference tournaments in the SOCON, the Colonial, the Sun Belt, and then we're also going to take a look here uh, at the Summit League conference tournament. Then we'll chat a little more college basketball for this weekend with Greg Peterson of VSIN and the Hoopin' with Hoops podcast. Should be a whole lot of fun here to wrap up this week on the program. That'll do it for me. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>